Brian Burns was born and raised in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And after graduating magna cum laude in 1983 from the School of Design at North Carolina State University, he worked as an art director for some pretty big advertising agencies, including McKinney and uh, Martin Agency uh, here in Richmond. As the years passed, he doubled as a copywriter. And then Brian got his first taste of history writing in 2006, about a decade ago, as uh, co-producer of the Rainbow Minute uh, at the WRIR 97.3 FM community radio here in Richmond. He's the author of several books, including Lewis Ginter, Richmond's Gilded Age Icon, and Curiosities of the Confederate Capital, Untold Richmond Stories of the Spectacular, Tragic, and Bizarre. His most recent book, and the subject of today's talk, is Gilded Age Richmond, Gaiety, Greed, and Lost Cause Mania. You like the sets of three, I can tell. <laughs> well, we're thrilled to have you here. We're thrilled to have all of you here. So welcome back, and without further ado, Brian Burns. Thank you. I'm going to do my best to transport you all back to the Gilded Age. So brace yourselves, because beneath the surface, it wasn't pretty. Um, the Gilded Age spanned from about 1870 to 1900, as America was becoming um, an industrial powerhouse. Capitalists back then would do whatever it took to become the next John D. Rockefeller. And a Richmonder of the time put it this way, in business as in war, everything is fair. <laughs> if you really wanted to make the millions, you had to be downright ruthless. Um, many, many Richmond businessmen were former Confederates who were accustomed to the concept of taking desperate measures to win. But of course, the Gilded Age could be very exciting too. Amid all sorts of technological innovations, Richmond was home to America's first major streetcar system in 1888. It seemed magical to travel without ho horses all of a sudden using the new technology of electricity. The cars could even uh, climb the, the hill on 7th Street in this picture. So of course, the photographer was all over this. The Richmond prototype developed here was duplicated in cities around the world. Safety bicycles also hit the scene, and people went nuts over them, especially the people that could afford them. On the right is wealthy Richmonder Henry Lee Valentine in his dapper riding outfit. And he, it, bicycles were such a status symbol back then that he decided to have a professional portrait taken in his studio with his bicycle. Believe it or not, it was a huge deal when this building was completed on Main Street in 1893. It was called the Chamber of Commerce Building, and Lewis Skinner provided much of the financing. Designed in the latest architectural style, the building was called Richmond's first skyscraper. <laughs> Following on its heels, two other architectural marvels adorned the city. There was a new Victorian Gothic city hall on Broad Street, built with a mountain of granite. Uh, it actually cost four times more than budgeted, which got city council in hot water, if you can imagine. <laughs> there was also the Beaux-Arts-style Jefferson Hotel, built by Lewis Skinner and his right-hand man, John Pope. Brimming with luxury and cutting-edge style, the hotel elevated Richmond's rank among American cities and helped attract capital here, which is what we desperately needed. 
Okay, let's look at Richmond's top three capitalists of the Gilded Age. Um, and mind you, these three men that I'm going to feature here were product, products of their time, so let's keep that in mind. Uh, number one, of course, was Major Lewis Skinner, who in 1875 became the first person to mass-produce and mass-market hand-rolled cigarettes. Now, this was at a time when smoking was actually considered harmless, if not good for the health. There are a lot of ads back then that said, oh, it will help your digestion. Um, there was actually one quote I found in a Richmond paper that said, oh, Peshaw, you know, cigarette smoking is, not, is dangerous. It's, it's no more dangerous than pie eating. <laughs> now, although Ginner pushed really hard like most capitalists did, he had luck on his side during this period. After he lobbied for a reduction on the cigarette tax with some other cigarette manufacturers, Congress approved a 70% reduction in, in taxes in 1883, which encouraged sales. Rolling machines arrived in the mid-1880s, which greatly reduced production costs. In 1890, Ginner's cigarette firm combined with four others to form the American Tobacco Company, which brought all those constituent companies um, much higher profits. And then later in, in 1890, American tobacco sales increased thanks to the McKinley Tariff. They reduced taxes on cigarettes local, uh, um, domestically. Now, Ginner built a fashionable Romanesque city mansion on West Franklin Street, one of the first Richmond homes with electricity. At the very same time, he built Westbrook, his country home north of the city. Now, next we have Joseph Bryan, who was a, a brilliant industrialist and corporate attorney. He built a stylish country villa called Laburnum, which was close to Ginner's home. It was palatial, as you can see by this photo of his study. This photo I found, uh, incidentally, at the Virginia Historical Society. They have a, a scrapbook of photos of this home. It's pretty spectacular. And then there was railroad magnate Major James Dooley. He helped create a vast rail network across the South, which helped the whole region prosper and grow after the Civil War. James Dooley and Joseph Ryan um, got together for several uh, investments, including an iron company in Birmingham called Sloss Iron and Steel. They never did make steel, but that was the name of the company. To minimize labor costs in their coal mines, the company took advantage of what was called the convict lease system, and they leased thousands of convicts from the state of Alabama for forced labor. Almost all of them black, they were housed in Sloss's private prison that was connected to the mines. The convict lease system was common in the South at the time, believe it or not. Um, private companies could work the convicts however they wished, and work quotas were enforced by state-sanctioned whippings. Most of these prisoners within this system had been convicted of minor offenses like loitering or missing an appointment, for example. Now, Ginner, uh, excuse me, Dooley also dabbled in real estate and banking and ended up one of America's most generous philanthropists. He was determined from an early age to strike it rich. When he was 14, he said, when I have $5,178,360, I will stop making money. I think he actually bypassed that figure by a little bit. 
At his wife's urging, Dooley built an exquisite mansion called Maymont. It was on 100 acres with a spectacular view of the James River. And thanks to the Maymont Foundation, the mansion remains today much as it did when the Dooleys lived there. They filled it with Gilded Age trappings like Tiffany stained glass windows, heavily carved furniture, neoclassical sculpture, and lots of gold leaf. This is Dooley's library, and this is Mrs. Dooley's parlor. But during the Gilded Age, millions of Americans lived in grinding poverty as wage laborers. Children actually worked in the factories to help their families survive because there was no child labor laws and families were that desperate. Laborers worked between 60 and 100 hours a week and lived in squalor. There was no minimum wage and there was no workplace safety standards. Pay cuts and layoffs were common. Desperate for a more equitable system of labor, laborers sought reforms like the 40-hour work week. This gave rise to the nation's first major labor union called the Knights of Labor. Now in 1885, the local chapter of the Knights of Labor started publication of the Labor Herald, and it informed workers about the movement and, and gave them advice on how to get involved through strikes and boycotts. The Richmond chapter of the Knights organized an ugly eight-month boycott of Haxel Mills since the firm used barrels made by convicts rather than union members. And at the Old Dominion Nail Works on Belle Isle, laborers protested a pay cut with a three-month strike. Of course, all eyes were on Chicago in, in May of 1886 when a major labor riot took place and a bomb killed 11 people, some of them policemen and some of them laborers. This might have been the first time that the press said that we had terrorism going on. So naturally, the country was very nervous. Now, if you can imagine, the labor movement infuriated capitalists. With their near absolute authority under threat, they asserted that strikes and boycotts were unlawful conspiracies and that riots were the worst of social evils. Capitalists were actually afraid that the power dynamic in the workplace was gonna be inverted and that they would be on the bottom. So they declared war on the Knights of Labor they launched a secret society called the Law and Order League, um, which vowed to crush out labor violence. They were armed and ready for vigilante justice. That meant tensions ran high in October 1886 when a biracial Knights of Labor convention kicked off in conservative Richmond. The Knights were at their peak by this point with a whopping 700,000 members nationwide. And in Richmond, there were about 800 um, delegates to the convention. In this scene, black New York machinist Frank Farrell is introducing the head of the Knights of Labor. This broke social norms in Richmond. Um, and seated at right is Governor Fitzhugh Lee. He was probably one of the most irked because Farrell started talking about the silly um, racial customs that we had here. He was probably squirming in his seat a little bit. That evening, he, things heated up even more. Some conventioneers went to the Academy of Music on 8th Street to see a performance of Hamlet, and Farrell sat in the whites-only section. And Richmond whites just went berserk, to put it mildly. The story made headlines across the country. 
The New York Times commented, the hot southern temper is at boiling point tonight. <laughs> now, rumor had it that the Knights were going to defy tradition again the next night at the Richmond Theater on Broad Street. The Law and Order League mobilized. They collected their members. They stood in front of the theater to block entry to any black knights that might show up. Um, there were about 5,000 people total standing outside to see what was going to go down. Fortunately, the knights didn't show up, which averted a bloody race riot. I, I found this, this story surprising. To me, this is a huge deal, but I think the reason that nobody talks about it is because the, the race riot didn't happen, but it really could have, and it, it was a big deal anyway. Now, even though this ended peacefully, the Law and Order League was not done with their work. Just days after the convention, they started up the Daily Times newspaper using propaganda to destroy the Knights of Labor and to advocate racial segregation. Lewis Skinner financed it in its first year and then passed it along to Joseph Bryan. Now here's an excerpt from the first issue. The working man ought to reflect that as soon as the Knights of Labor assail his employer, he is apt to be withdrawn from business. In other words, if you rock the boat, you could lose your job, so you should probably just accept the status quo. Now, the, the Labor Herald sniped back saying, it is just as impertinent for capitalist newspapers to give advice to working men as it would be for the devil to teach angels how to sing hallelujah. <laughs> for many reasons, the Knights of Labor quickly declined. For one thing, Southern whites left the order in droves because of the, the controversial convention here in Richmond. And we really can't underestimate the power of the capitalist press for turning the public against the Knights. Okay, the Gilded Age was also a period of intense Confederate nostalgia, including a big push for Confederate monuments. As a result of a, of a propaganda campaign by former Confederate generals, Southern whites saw the Confederacy and the Old South in glowing terms. The Lost Cause movement defined the Confederate cause as a valiant struggle for states' rights and constitutional liberty. Slaves, if they were ever talked about, were portrayed as content and loyal. Lost cause ideology was spouted everywhere, like this statement from a Richmond paper. The Confederacy rose so white and fair and fell so pure of crime. Now, when Jefferson Davis died in 1889, Southern whites were in mourning Although many wartime Southerners hated him and his policies, he was now viewed as a martyr for the Confederate cause. Uh, he had served two years at Fort Monroe in prison, some of it in leg shackles. So he was actually, by this point, compared to Christ. Elite former Confederates scrambled, as soon as he died, scrambled to have his remains brought here for, for reburial and to have a monument built here for him. Unfortunately, it would take 18 years to pull all of that off. Here are two of the most militant activists. On the left is Major Norman V. Randolph, a wealthy box manufacturer and executive with the Soldiers Home for Confederate Veterans on the boulevard. He was also a leader of the Law and Order League. As a member of the Davis Monument Planning Board, he proposed a budget of $250,000, which would be about $5 million today. 
he would eventually confess he was setting his sights a little too high. On the right is Norman's wife, Janet. She was an officer with the Daughters of the Confederacy, which took over the project midstream. She would prove the miracle worker of the fundraising campaign and finish what her husband started. To encourage Southerners to donate to the project, she said, Jefferson Davis, chosen by us and suffering for us, demanded this recognition by his people. That's classic lost cause dogma. In 1893, nearly four years after Davis's death, his widow finally agreed to have, have his remains brought to Richmond for reburial. There was a massive funeral parade to Hollywood Cemetery. Then the Monument Committee got started. A key organizer for the project said he wanted a monument so high that a pigeon could not fly over it. <laughs> In 1896, this grand temple design was approved reflecting the esteem whites had for Davis. Not coincidentally, the design resembled Grant's tomb, which was under construction in New York City. There was, there was a little bit of competition between North and South still. Uh, <clears throat> a cornerstone was laid for the Davis Monument in Monroe Park amid great fanfare during a Confederate veterans reunion. But after four more years of fundraising struggles, the Monument Committee realized they'd never get close to their goal. They had that, you know, they were shooting to, to, for 250,000. I think at this point they had about 20,000. The South was relatively poor at this point, besides there was a national depression going on. The second design proposal was a triumphal arch of all things. Hello, the South did lose the war. Um, <laughs> Measuring 65 feet tall, it was planned for Broad Street at 12th, with streetcars running through in both directions. It was inspired by a temporary plaster arch standing on that spot during a recent street carnival. But before long, the arch concept was deemed too expensive, too. What organizers de desperately needed was a budget-minded design that still managed to be imposing and full of symbolism. And they needed to come up with it quickly because the veterans were dying off. Finally, in 1907, after 18 years of scraping together nickels and dimes, this $70,000 design was unveiled on Monument Avenue. Again, they were shooting for 250, they ended up with 70. <clears throat> like the Lee Monument, it was built to spur suburban development in the West End. Joseph Bryan owned lots in today's fan district, so naturally he campaigned for the Davis Monument to be along Monument Avenue. But this monument wasn't just about honoring a person and his exploits like the, like the Lee Monument did. It was about vindicating the Confederate cause. So at the top of that, that tall column you see there was an allegorical figure named Vindicatrix. <laughs> they, got, they got a lot of bang for their buck for this, for this monument. <clears throat> Orators at the unveiling listed Davis's virtues, but they actually spoke more about the righteousness of the cause and states' rights. Again, the subject of slavery didn't get as much as a whisper. In his speech, Governor Swanson hearkened back to the war saying, those four years formed the brightest jewels in Virginia's crown of glories. Then addressing the old veterans in the crowd, he said, Virginia will cherish to remotest time the justice of your cause and the greatness of your accomplishments. Now, one person who didn't buy into this, this line at all 
was John Mitchell Jr. He was, a, he was a former slave, and he was, at this point, the editor of the Daily Planet, I mean, excuse me, Richmond Planet, uh, which fought for racial justice and gave voice to oppressed blacks. One of his favorite causes was lynching, which was at its peak in the 1890s. Now, John Mitchell Jr. asserted that Confederate monuments will ultimately result in handing down to generations unborn a legacy of treason and blood. He also infamously quipped, the Negro put up the Lee Monument, and should the time come, will be there to take it down. And I guess we're about to find out how prophetic he was or wasn't. Okay, that's the end of the slideshow. I thought I would um, do a couple readings from my book. And the first one is about Oscar Wilde's visit to Richmond in 1882 for a lecture. And the, the, the chapter title is called Oscar Wilde's Chilly Reception, Richmond Snub's Famous Poet and Esthete. <clears throat> Richmond society wasn't ready for a British dandy expounding on the virtues of the, of the lily. So when the apostle of aestheticism came to the Richmond Theater on July 11, 1882 for a lecture on decorative art, only about 200 souls showed up. The dispatch described the audience as, quote, citizens of culture and refinement, while the odd percentage comprised men of no well-defined status, curious visitors, pressmen, and other miscellaneous odds and ends of humanity. <laughs> a hot auditorium couldn't have been everybody's first choice that summer night. Thirteen years before his ruinous scandal, Wilde was on a lofty mission. He wanted to, quote, unite all artists in a brotherhood of art and to draw closer together those who cultivate the beautiful. Taking center stage, he bowed to the audience with his long, dark hair curling about his shoulders. He was dressed in a black velvet coat, waistcoat, knee breeches, dark hose, and dancing slippers. His sheer cotton shirt had a profusion of ruffled lace. The audience tepidly clapped. <clears throat> Clearing his throat, Wilde sprinkled his witty lecture with do's and don'ts of beautifying the American home. He recommended that paintings be hung at eye level rather than at the cornice, adding that hanging two pictures side by side, quote, kill each other or rather both commit artistic suicide. <laughs> Plus, art should be brought to the everyday. Even a humble broom handle should be adorned, he said, to make it a thing of beauty and joy forever. He lamented that most Southerners painted their houses a boring white rather than a rich brown, for instance. Before he was finished, he denounced Eastlake furniture, horsehair sofas, grand pianos, and wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. <laughs> Apparently, Wilde didn't win any converts. As for the audience's reaction, well, let's just say they didn't throw him roses like a cheering crowd had in New York. Accustomed to mixed reviews, Wilde couldn't have been surprised that Richmond papers eyed him askance. The dispatch harped on his odd outfit. It disparaged his big belly, short neck, and horse head. It also lit into his delivery. While conceding some of his remarks were, quote, eloquent word painting, it criticized his monotonous monotone, broken only by a few inflections. For good measure, the paper added that his hairstyle resembled Buffalo Bill's, with apologies to Buffalo Bill. <laughs> and it goes on to tell more about that story. 
Now I'm just going to read one other little excerpt. This is, I'm going to read the whole chapter that's titled Lawyerus Belva Lockwood, Shattering a Glass Ceiling in Virginia. <clears throat> During the early 1890s, Virginia had no female lawyers at all. Zilch, zero. Jaws dropped at the mere suggestion of such a thing. Enter courageous trailblazing feminist Belva Ann Lockwood. Born in 1830 on a hardscrabble farm in upstate New York, in midlife she attended the National University Law School in Washington, D.C., now George Washington University Law School. She completed her coursework in 1873, but was denied a diploma because the male students objected to graduating with women. After a personal appeal to President Grant, however, she got that diploma and quickly gained admission to the District of Columbia Bar. At 43, she established her own practice in the nation's capital, which provided a good living. A health nut, she briskly pedaled to the courts and the capital on a newfangled adult tricycle, shrugging off jeers with a smile. In 1879, with her help behind the scenes, a new law allowed qualified female attorneys to practice in any federal court. That same year, Belva Lockwood became the first female lawyer to argue a case before the U.S. Supreme Court. She was even a candidate for President of the United States in 1884 and 1888 with the National Equal Rights Party. Though facing ridicule and coming up short, she felt victorious in bringing women's rights into the national spotlight. Resuming her law practice, Belva hit the lecture circuit and wrote a rash of intelligent essays making the case for women's suffrage and pacifism. In the summer, in the summer of, 18, of 1890, she boarded a ship by herself, bound for the Universal Peace Congress in London. Stormy seas turned passengers all shades of green, but sturdy Belva Lockwood reported no inconvenience other than wet feet. At the, at the request of several clergymen on board, she gave a talk on the peace question, which, quote, drew a sizable crowd to the ship's dining room and considerable applause. At the Peace Congress held in the Westminster Town Hall, she delivered an eloquent, well-informed speech on international disarmament. Meanwhile, ironically, Belva was nearing a battle of her own in Virginia. The state Senate was debating whether women should be allowed to practice law in the courts of the Commonwealth. Many believe the occupation was beyond, quote, the women's sphere. Speaker Cardwell went further, deeming the measure, quote, calculated to degrade the standing of the fair sex. But former delegate James Dooley of Richmond told an interviewer, I think women ought to be allowed to practice law and medicine as freely as men. In January 1890, about 50 ladies showed up to witness the proceedings and were ushered into the Senate chamber. Then things got heated. Mr. Heaton of Loudoun County spoke in favor of the measure, saying, quote, no possible harm could come of the passage of the bill. But Mr. Woods of Charlotte County chafed, believing God dictated men to be sole breadwinner. Why, gentlemen, he added, when the devil tempted Eve, he presented her with the apple. He didn't require her to climb the tree for it. God did not intend that Eve should work. <laughs> Other legislators made the Woman's Lawyers Bill the butt of jokes. When it came up for a formal vote, it failed miserably. 
The Senate took up the measure again during the 1891-92 session. A few spoke in favor. Then came Senator Flood of Appomattox. If the measure passed, he warned, the Anglo-Saxon civilization of Virginia would collapse, and he would feel that the men who made the last charge at Appomattox had died in vain. <laughs> he also believed that female lawyers would be the gateway to female politicians, heaven forbid. Again, the bill was solidly defeated. Belva Lockwood simply didn't take no for an answer. In early 1894, she directly petitioned Judge Welford of Henrico County for a license to practice in his court. He denied her request, citing there was no precedent. Belva knew, knew a convenient excuse when she heard one. The real issue was Virginia's, quote, sentiment in regard to women, she said bluntly. Indeed, one newspaper editor believed she, quote, and other women of refined taste and delicate nerves would have difficulty dealing with the rough and vulgar proceedings which almost daily occur in the courts. That editor did not know Belva Lockwood one bit. She took the case straight to Virginia's Court of Appeals. Normally, it had five judges on the bench, but one was due to illness. It ended up a two-to-two -two decision. The lower court's ruling stood. With a self-professed zeal for justice, Belva took her case all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Addressing the court, she called the practice of law a privilege, adding, quote, while your petitioner is a woman, there is nothing in the Constitution or the laws of the United States or in the statute law of Virginia to prevent her from exercising this high and valuable privilege. Unfortunately, a month later, her appeal was denied. Chief Justice Fuller said the Virginia Court of Appeals had every right to determine the eligibility of anyone to practice before it. Luckily, Belva had one more trick up her sleeve. At the next session of the Virginia Court of Appeals, when all five justices were impaneled, she renewed her motion. It paid off. On June 15, 1894, she finally triumphed with a three to two decision. <clears throat> she became the first woman ever licensed to practice law in Virginia. Soon enough, she would be sworn in by Judge Welford, the very man who had refused her just months earlier. The editor of the Richmond Times was ambivalent. Quote, the Times is not very enthusiastic over the Virginia Court of Appeals admitting Mrs. Belva Lockwood to its bar, nor is it a very enthusiastic woman's rights journal as, a woman's, ri as woman's rights is popularly understood. Nevertheless, the Times thinks the decision of the Court of Appeals is right. We see no reason why a woman should be debarred from making a, a living by any honest and honorable calling. The opportunities which women have to make their livings are narrow and few enough, heaven knows. If any woman thinks she has found an intellectual calling in which she can maintain herself and her family, in the name of humanity, let her employ her talents and energies in it if she can get employment. In contrast, contrast the editor of the Stanton Spectator felt like the world was careening off its axis. <laughs> women should, quote, stick to the cradle, he asserted, adding that when a woman, quote, becomes a man, she will cease to command the love and affection she now does, and the sweet charms of her femininity will be a thing of the past. 
On the other side of the Potomac, the progressive Washington Times congratulated Belva for knocking down a barrier that had so long impeded the material, moral, and intellectual advancement of women. In conservative Virginia, the case called, caused backlash. The year after Belva made history, the Virginia statute was amended to permit any male citizen to be licensed to practice law. It's unclear whether the state stripped Belva Lockwood of her privilege or not, but it didn't matter. She was already pedaling at a clip to her next great victory. Thank you very much. We're gonna take some questions here. I think there's some people out in the audience with microphones. informative and interesting uh, period about which we, we don't hear much. But it seems that uh, unregulated capitalism and the lost cause are resurgent again. Yes. What lessons might we take away from your research? Wow, that is such a good question. <laughs> oh, if I had answers to that, I'd win the Nobel Peace Prize, I think. Um, gracious. You know, um, it's, 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 it's hard to beat City Hall, even though a lot of people are trying. Um, and we've got, we've, got, we've got so many different media outlets in this country that, that encourage the kind of um, bigotry that, that I don't think we should have here. So I don't know what the answer is. I don't know how to get rid of those, honestly. Anybody else? No other questions? Yes. He'll, he's coming with a microphone. Brian, I want to thank you for pointing out that the, strug the struggle for women, women's rights started so long ago. And yet it still continues. And yet it still continues, and some of the characteristics of the time are still very strong here in Richmond and in Virginia now. Mm -hmm. I wish it were a good lesson for all of us. I'm afraid it isn't. We still have a long way to go. Thank you. We do, you. we do. There's another one. I have a question about Oscar Wilde's visit. I wonder if he said anything about his visit here. You gave us a little bit of the press's reaction to him. I wonder <clears> if he came up with any wonderful pithy statements. He did, he did, and I want to, I've got it in the book, I want to read it exactly so I get it right. So right before his um, lecture, he was given a tour of Richmond, and with a nod to former Confederate soldiers, he remarked, quote, this is indeed a city worth dying for. Um, he actually, he actually, um, um, related to the Confederate cause because he was from, um, what was it, um, where was it? Um, was it Ireland? Yeah, Ireland. And they were fighting for independence from supposedly um, tyranny. And so he thought the Confederate cause was right. But he did have a, a little incident uh, later that summer. He was, um, he was trying, he was getting on board a train with his African-American porter. And uh, this was in the South, this was in Georgia. 
And <clears throat> the porter knew, the, the train conductor knew that he was going to get in trouble for, for, having a, for sharing a, a car with a black man in the South. He said, in fact, that if, if whites you know, discovered what was going on at the next stop, they would probably lynch that black man. So he was forced to give in. But Oscar Wilde resisted for a while until he had that threat. Anybody else? Here we go. Mr. Mitchell uh, loaded two pistols and yes. Yes. Virginia yes. To research a mm -hmm. about a lynching down there. Where was the uh, the law and order league when uh, these people were lynched, and, and, and what were they doing? Other than making a buck? Well, remember there are secret societies, so there's not a whole lot of records. I had a hard time finding um, records at all. But fortunately, at the Virginia Historical Society, they have a copy of the the Law and Order League's Constitution and Bylaws. Um, and it basically just says that, you know, the time has come since all the, there's all this labor violence. The time has come that, that citizens have to pitch in and try to keep law and order. But um, I think you're correct in assuming that the Law and Order League was very much similar to the KKK. Um, um, I don't, there was probably some overlap there. Anybody else? Excuse me. Um, you've talked about um, Oscar Wilde and the um, feminist movement. What were the sexual mores of Richmond at the time? I'm sorry, could you repeat that? What were the sexual mores of Richmond at the time? As far as? As far as feminism and, of course, Oscar Wilde was a noted gay man. Well, um, he was not noted at that time for uh, being gay. He was, he was a married man. Um, he, he had not... Um, he had not faced that aspect of his personality at that point. Um, but as we were just saying, um, there was definitely a lot of sexism. It was a male-dominated society, absolutely, um, which is one reason why I think the, um, the labor movement you know, you know, ang angered the capitalists so much was because they suddenly, you know, their absolute authority was, was no, lo no longer totally respected. They feared that it would not be. And so they nipped it in the bud is what they really did. They really did. But I think, I think maybe what you're also asking is what were attitudes towards sexuality, maybe? Is that what you're asking? Yeah. Um, I don't think that was really talked about much. Um, and, and I've read a lot of things that said that really back then, men didn't think that women had a sex drive even. Um, and, and men sort of hung together. They sort of stayed together in their little social groups um, and did their own thing. So um, women were, were very much left out of the picture a lot. Yes? Uh, could you say a little bit more about the convict labor um, and how long did that last? You know, what caused it to start and that sort of thing? Thank you. Well, obviously, it was an extension of, of slavery. Um, and I think it pretty much started right after the Civil War, maybe 10 years after or so. Um, and it lasted till about 1926. And Alabama, which was the state that the Sloss Iron and Steel was in, uh, was the last, Alabama was the last state to get rid of that system. Um, it was actually replaced pretty much by the, uh, the chain gang. So not much improvement. Um, 
Uh, it was really, it was, it's really, it's really striking to read about it. There's a really good book that's called Slavery by Another Name, and it's written by, it's, it's a Nobel Prize winning book, um, it's written by a, a former uh, Wall Street Journal reporter. And basically what, what he did is he, he wrote just sort of a, 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 a newspaper story about it, and there was such a, a strong reaction to it that he ended up writing this big book, and it chronicled um, as much as he could find about that system in specific, specific countries, specific companies, specific people that were victims of the system. And it's pretty obvious that it was, that, it, that in the South, it was a system of um, human trafficking. You know, um, companies really needed cheap labor, and often, um, Lawmakers like local sheriffs were complicit in finding that labor for them. There are stories of um, business owners going to the, to the sh local sheriff and saying, I need some more labor here. Can you do something about it? And they would go out and round up some more blacks to, to help them out. Um, the trials that they went through for their supposed crimes were often sham trials. They were completely railroaded. Um, um, so yeah, just a horrible, horrible, heartbreaking story. They, they the, yeah, they leased the they leased the convicts from either the state of Alabama or local counties, um, and 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 local sheriffs had a motive in perpetuating the system because when the trials happened, they made money. They had to people people that were that were um, arrested had to pay the, the sheriff for court costs and that sort of thing, so they had a monetary motive to, to per perpetuate the system and also because of racism. The the convicts, yeah. um, largely black. I don't know the exact figures. I, at least ninety five percent black. attitude towards new Americans like so-called uh, so-called uh, immigrants immigrants in other words I read someplace uh, in the last 20 years that uh, uh, Germans some Germans were uh, put in the mines with blacks in the south as if they didn't want them uh, what was the attitude towards uh, I'm really not an expert on that although I've read several um, stories about uh, Immigrants really not being welcome here. Um, and there were a lot of people that were Americans that were saying that they were competing too much for the, the jobs. Does that sound familiar? Um, um, the Chinese were very discriminated against, more than anybody else, I think, any other, um, from any other country. I don't know why. Um, anybody else? Yes. It, from what I've been able to tell, it did not go on in Virginia, um, but but generally throughout the South until the 1920s. It's easier. 1926 is when the last state um, abolished the practice. Mm -hmm. Okay. I haven't been in Richmond that long, but I remember first coming and thinking some of the names are so peculiar, of you know places, and I 
thought about Goochland and looked it up and saw the lands belonging to Mrs. Gooch. Was she an anomaly, or were there other land baronesses like her, or did they simply inherit from their husbands? I, I really have no idea. I'm sure a lot of the, the a lot of them are like that, but I don't know specifics. I'm sorry. Good. Okay. Did you find much evidence of a middle-income business white class um, objection to tax money being used for these grandiose buildings, especially at a time when probably most middle-income and lower-income white people were just trying to rebuild Richmond? Yes, the, 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 when the, when the um, new city hall was built, which we call now Old City Hall, that was a flashpoint for a lot of things. Um, there were a lot of, um, there were a lot of Richmond capitalists that actually said uh, that this is wrong because it, it is, they didn't want it to be using uh, union laborers, and it did. Um, that was one of the few times that union labor got, got work. Um, they also said that it, it spent way too much money for, this, for the size of this town. Uh, and I think I mentioned that uh, it was quite a scandal that it cost as much as it did. There were actually some accusations of fiduciary malfeasance with city council, because city council supervised the whole project. They, they, they found the architect, they, they set the budget, they managed the project the whole, the, the whole way through. Uh, of course, you know, at the end, the, the media was saying, oh, it is one of the best buildings in the South, you know, when in fact it was actually already out of um, fashion when it was built because it took seven years to build. Yeah, yeah. Last question. During this time, were there any advocates from the uh, religious community to either uh, as advocates for women's rights or opposition to segregation, or were the churches and synagogues largely silent? I have not seen anything in any of the, the sources that I have read where people in the South were really willing to take a stand like that. Uh, in fact, when, the, when that labor convention happened here in 1886, um, a lot, of the, a lot of the whites that were in the Knights left the order because they didn't want to be associated. Not only did they not want to be associated with the, the violence that that movement was taking on, but they didn't, they didn't want to be seen as um, sympathetic to blacks at all. And, and, the, and the Knights of Labor was a biracial coalition, um, and they, they just felt too, too uncomfortable to stick with that. Well, thank you all very, very much.